The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. You might have been unlucky enough to have been sitting with a kid at an emergency department wondering just how long this might take, and if you were even in the right place. It's not a nice feeling, or a very productive one. It turns out that a lot of the people in the queue ahead of you, and maybe even you, might not be best served at that place. This insight helped lead today's guest to take a sidestep from a successful academic and business career into software entrepreneurship, making an app called Emergency Queue that works with DHBs and emergency and community health providers to make sure everyone gets the fastest, most appropriate care for their needs. It's saving millions of dollars and countless hours and meaning stretched emergency departments are working on only the highest need cases. The app is the idea of Morris Peter, who gained an MBA at Oxford, was involved in delivering some of the biggest clean energy generation projects in the country and became a consultant working on significant Māori economic development projects. To talk the journey, the goals of Emergency Q and economic development, Morris joins us now. Tēnā koe, thank you for joining us. Kia ora, thank you for having me. Hey, first off, it'd be really cool kind of to chat to your career leading up to uh, the, the software development. Tell me how, you know, your, your career took you through, was it management consulting and then to Oxford? Yeah, well, it was an interesting journey. I... Um uh, wasn't even planning to go to university. As a high school student, I had a chemistry teacher, Gillian Trotman, who um, stopped a chemistry class midway through and said, I've made up my mind you're going to university and you're going to go to law school. And then she carried on teaching us about whatever she was teaching us. And so it's funny how certain things happen in your life which sort of set your course going forward. Um, so I, off to university I went and um, enrolled in a law degree and completed that and um, thought that I would uh, spend the rest of my days as a civil servant working in public policy in Wellington, which I did for a year or two and I really enjoyed it, but I found myself really attracted to the, uh, the management aspect of what we were doing, uh, more so than the policy aspect, which while fascinating, um, it was more the delivery of things that I was finding myself interested in. So from there I ended up uh, at Ernst & Young as a management consultant for a couple of years, uh, which in turn uh, sort of I was able to see that um, I needed to broaden my training, I needed to get a a wider skill set than I'd come out of um, with my uh, liberal arts background and uh, ended up going off and doing an MBA to to address that. That's fascinating. What, what was it that meant that you hadn't thought? Because, you know, they're, they're not trivial things getting uh, 
masters in law from from Auckland and getting MBOs from Oxford. I mean, what what was it that made you think that academia wasn't for you, considering you are obviously so right for it? Oh, look, I really enjoyed the studies, but I always saw them as a means to an end. Um, so it was a way of developing my thinking processes. I'll never forget when I first got to law school. I didn't, like anyone who walked in there, didn't know how to think legally. And so they train your mind to approach problems in a certain way. And law school is particularly good for seeing the wood from the trees. Um, and as I said, uh, for me, the MBA was a way of broadening that skill set so that I was able to engage in more commercial issues um, in a more effective way. So, yeah, the, it was always a way of getting to the next step. Um, and the MBA was a way of doing a better job in the private sector, which ironically, if you'd asked me sort of five or ten years earlier when I was an undergraduate, was the last thing that I had on my mind as a career choice. That's where I've spent the vast majority of my time since. Isn't that interesting? Because it's kind of like there's this idea that there isn't a lot of creativity in a commerce degree or something. But then once you get into the kind of the world of trying to make things happen, it's nothing but creative problem solving. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things in business, particularly when you're an entrepreneur, which is the, the space that I've been living in for the last decade or so, uh, it's all well and good to have uh, an idea uh, but you need to be able to action that idea and translate it into a service or a product that's actually going to solve someone's real-life problem. So, yeah, this having the, the management training and then obviously the experience, in my case, I worked in corporate, both in the UK and here in New Zealand, gave me, I guess, the, the wider toolkit that I required to take ideas and translate those into genuine solutions for everyday people. And what's... Oxford like? I mean, I, I guess everyone's got these kind of um, mediated views through, uh, I, I guess in my head it's halfway between Brideshead Revisited and Harry Potter. Like, what's it really like? It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> you know, as a Māori boy growing up in Beechhaven and then finding yourself on the other side of the world, um, living what was really only a fantasy. Uh, as I say, I wasn't even planning to go to university. And then, you know, roughly 10 years later, there I was. Uh, the first thing I noticed was when I was walking to my first class was just the walls going along the side of the road uh, were so old. We would take those walls and probably put them in the Auckland Museum. Um, and they were just brick walls. Um, but pretty quickly, the um, the pressure cooker of that environment um, takes over and you find yourself just engaging very quickly in that, in that world. And, um, yeah, it's really important too because one of the other parts that you learn there is that um, there's a major, major, major emphasis on teamwork, particularly in the MBA program, and those teams are multicultural. So I think 70% of us were from other parts of the world, weren't from the UK. So you learn very quickly how to assemble teams and deliver a specific outcome within a very short time period. So yeah, it was a fascinating experience. The college system too is, is, is really amazing. And then coming back here after you know doing a bit of corporate over there as well, and into working on some really big clean energy projects with um, Mighty River Power. How did that interest come about? Well, it, was a, it, was, um, it dovetailed quite nicely with what I'd done in the UK. So I'd worked for BG Group, which was a, a gas exploration and production company. Um, and I was in their strategy and economics team for a while. When I came back home, um, the opportunity arose uh, at Mighty River Power, which was then led by Doug Heffernan, uh, is now Mercury and run by Fraser. Um, and the company had a very um, strong uh, focus on um, delivering uh, a, a, an enhanced, if you like, or a growing portfolio of energy 
um, projects for the future of New Zealand's economic development. Uh, it also had a, uh, a strong focus on creating genuine partnerships with local iwi. And so that ticked both of my boxes and was a fantastic company to work for. There must be a lot of moving parts in pulling together not only a huge engineering uh, challenge, a, a site-specific kind of um, energy uh, development issue, and then, of course, all of, as you say, the iwi relations and the stakeholder and the government and competing kind of resource pressures on, on rivers and the like. Yeah, what, what kind of, what's involved in making something like that happen? Uh, I think the key thing is um, you've got a, a well-led business um, with good governance, uh, with a real clear, unambiguous view of what it's trying to achieve and how it's going to go about that. Uh, so Mighty River had a certain style of, of doing business, which I um, found um, you know, very easy to connect with at a personal level. Uh, lots of moving parts. Um, there's obviously you know, stakeholders in the community, political stakeholders, and then just the commercial imperative of making sure that what you do um, is efficient and um, creates uh, the kinds of long-term outcomes that you want it to do, not just for the business, but for all the stakeholders that are affected by that business. And the business case and then the first delivery of that, I, I kind of can't fathom it if you're working in kind of the near half a billion dollar kind of um, budget zone. The smallest things going wrong anywhere could just have such big repercussions. They can, and that's why, for example, in geothermal energy exploration, which was a part of the business that I ended up working in, particularly towards the latter part of my time there, um, you need to have a sufficiently strong balance sheet to be able to insulate yourself against things going wrong because they invariably do. Um, so you might spend you know, well, quite a large amount of money in just looking to firm up a project, but you have to be prepared to lose that money. Obviously, you, you try to take all the steps that you need to to reduce risk, um, but no, it's not a, it's not a simple business. And um, yeah, but it's one that... I think is particularly satisfying when things go well. And in a project of that size, you know, I, I imagine um, that those relationships and that work with, with iwi, did that help lead you into the kind of uh, Māori and iwi economic development kind of area as an interest out of working there, or had it always been an interest? Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was complementary to what I was trying to achieve. So fundamentally, when I came back from the UK, I was looking for a role in the energy space. Um, and as I mentioned previously, Mighty River Power also had a very strong connection with iwi, um, which is a big part of my life. I'm from Ngāti Wai me Ngāti Hini, i te rohi o Whangaruru. Um, so I come from a place called Ngāio Tonga um, in the north of New Zealand and have always had um, a strong level of involvement and um, I guess exposure through my father and his side of the family uh, to that world. So it's always just been a natural part of what I am and who I am. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was it, it complemented nicely what what mattered to me at a personal level, um, yeah. And then setting out on your own consultancy to help other projects. T tell me about that because it's such an interesting area of the economy now, where the 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 power economically of iwi groups in New Zealand is only going to grow because it's the only money in the country that's moral. Like any other money, will go anywhere to chase any return, and it's the only asset base that thinks intergenerationally, uh, actually, you know, will only build things here. Yeah, yeah. T tell me about that area. Uh, I think it's a really um, unique part of the New Zealand economy and one we should all be proud of. Uh, firstly, it's exponential growth. And, you know, less than three decades has been phenomenal as a result of the treaty settlements initially 
which sparked obviously the Ngai Tahu and the Waikato Tainui uh, momentum. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the other part of it I think that is really unique is that when iwi are making investment decisions, clearly they'll be looking at the bottom line. Um, however, they'll also be looking at a number of other lines, not least of which will be what does this mean, as you just described, for generations three, four, five, six down the track from here? So they really do tend to take not a 10-year view or 20-year view, they're taking a 100-plus year view. The other thing they'll be looking at is how, um, what kind of an impact will this create for our people in terms of opportunities to improve their own lives, whether that's through uh, further training or further employment opportunities and the like. So, yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, um, an important part of the economic, but also the cultural and social fabric of who we are as New Zealanders. And it's such a great story of amazing management, which is so rarely kind of applied to it because media love to look for you know, problems and all the rest of it. But if you look at like the amounts that were involved in these treaty settlements, they're tiny. Mm. Like they were tiny compared to the redress and uh, you, you know what was taken in the first instance mm. and um, the breaches. And in most of the settlements, as an outside observer, it seems that more of the importance was just getting the historical record straight and getting an admission of how things actually had gone. And the money was kind of a, you know, like it's it certainly more was paid out in the South Canterbury finance um, uh, failure than in all treaty settlements combined. And yet, you know, it's been such a story of economic success. No, you're quite right. There have been a number of corporate bailouts going back over the last two or three decades that, that I'm sure we're all more than familiar with, which, um, you know, vastly outweigh or outnumber the, the quantity that's being generated as far as uh, treaty settlements are concerned. Um, well, so I think what's happened is over time, iwi leadership have taken some very pragmatic and very wise decisions uh, on behalf of their own people, but also on behalf of New Zealand Inc. And as a result, you've, you've seen this incredible momentum. So I'm not quite sure what the current numbers sit at, but the last time I did some, which is probably four or five years ago, I think the Māori economy was sitting in the $40 billion, $45 billion mark. Uh, it'll be no doubt much, much higher than that at the moment. <clears throat> and 10 years from now, um, again, because of the miracle of compounding growth, we'll find that that position has moved on considerably as well, which is only going to be a good thing for New Zealand and creates jobs uh, in general, um, and not just for Māori, but for other Kiwis who are looking to be a part of growing, exciting, successful businesses. I think the other really exciting thing about Māori business is it's becoming increasingly diversified. So traditionally, we were heavily involved in the primary industries so of forestry and farming and the like, which is still a critical backbone of, of what we do. But however, increasingly, we're becoming more and more diversified. So, for example, uh, in the technology space, which is the one I've been working in for the last three years in particular. Yeah, tell me about your, your journey into, um, into being a soft, because this is like a very significant career, like working on some really big projects, with, um, especially with the, the iwi groups and, and Māori economic development. Uh, must be very satisfying. And then involved in governance, so onto DHBs, um, pretty gnarly kind of workload, I imagine. What what led you to, to, to be thinking, I'll tell you what, late 30s, I'm going to become a software entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, look, it's um, my career's sort of been a bit that way. Um, I get involved in things and I, um, I enjoy them. And then, you know, every door that you go through in life, two or three new doors present themselves at some point. Um, I was fortunate enough to have the, um, uh, the privilege of being asked to sit on um, uh, the Auckland District Health Board and the Waitamata District Health Board back in 2013. And 
It was interesting, actually, because whilst as a governor, you have access to some very good information about the organisation, what's going well, and also, importantly, where its challenges lie. Even though um, I was very aware that in the emergency department part of the business, uh, there were some challenges that needed to be um, continually dealt with. It wasn't actually until I had a personal experience a couple of years later with one of my own sons who was ill one weekend um, that the idea for this kind of a solution came to mind. So I um, sketched it out the following morning and um, uh, did a bit of research on it and um, uh, declared my interest, declared my conflict, if you like, at a board level and stepped out of all conversations and board meetings, et cetera, related to that particular topic, i.e. emergency medicine, and uh, got on with it. So... Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. It's been quite different to what I was doing before, but I always maintain or try to a fairly open attitude and view of the world and what might come around the corner tomorrow. And uh, yeah, this has been a really exciting uh, process to be a part of. And talk us through that idea. So you're sitting there with your, your son at the emergency department and what happens? Look, they gave us fantastic treatment. I should make it clear, I'm, I'm neither technical, so I'm not, uh, I'm not a coder. And nor am I clinical, so I'm not a nurse or a doctor. Um, but never let those sorts of barriers get in the way of a good idea and what you think might be an idea. Uh, so we, we had a son who was ill one night. Uh, it was on the weekend, and our doctor, we knew, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to see him probably till Monday afternoon. Um, and so we wanted to get him uh, assessed. So we took him to a, a local emergency department. And look, the nurses and the doctors were fantastic. Uh, so you couldn't fault any of that. But I thought to myself, <clears throat> after that experience, had somebody said to us, look, with his particular issue, um, he could actually safely be seen in a primary care environment. And uh, by the way, there's one, two and a half kilometres from where we're sitting now. And by the way, they could see him in about an hour. And by the way, you're going to be here for seven and a half hours. And by the way, he's under 13, so he's free. If someone had given us those basic data points, that would have really affected the decision that we took as carers, which is why the next day I sort of sketched out before I even got out of bed, emergency cures assisted. And that seven hours that you're sitting there, mm. you're actually clogging up the, cl the queue for people who actually need to be in the emergency department too. Yeah, unknowingly. And uh, as I said, I was a board member on that particular organisation. Um, and it's a very common problem. And so it really sort of hit me the next day. I thought there's got to be a better way of doing this. And you're absolutely right. The, the emergency departments of hospitals are staffed by people who are trained to deal with medical emergencies. So if the bone is sticking out of your leg, fantastic choice. If you've got chest pain, you're in the right place. But if you've got itchy eyes, or you just want to repeat script, or if you've got a cold, it's probably not the ideal location to start your medical journey. You're much better off starting in a primary care environment in the community, say at a GP or at a local walk-in clinic. And it'd be a lot more expensive to get someone tooled up for emergencies to deal with an earache. Totally. I mean, obviously they've got uh, large overheads, um, particularly the cost of just the infrastructure of building and running a hospital. Um, you know, each time you want to add 10 new beds to an emergency department, you have to write a cheque for $10, $20 million. So the overheads are massive. Um, it's far, far more cost effective for the taxpayer if that patient is treated in the community. So the logical checks out, but how do you go about creating uh, an app and get it into the hospitals to l get people the right information and then get it into people's hands so they know to use it? It's not easy. <laughs> yeah. uh, you <clears throat> uh, start at the beginning 
and keep going. Mm. Uh, you will get knocked down regularly and you have to dust yourself off and, and get back up again. Um, you have to create everything. Um, you have to come up with the idea. You have to uh, come up with a name for the company, for the product. Then you have to find someone to help you build the product. Um, you have to create the governance structures, the policy structures, the health and safety systems. Everything has to be created from scratch. It's one of the biggest challenges about being an entrepreneur. I think there's like two kinds of entrepreneur. Uh, I think I've been both so far. There's might maybe a third and fourth I just haven't come across yet. I look forward to that. But the two broad categories I always look at entrepreneurship and are one, the entrepreneur who, who gets involved in an existing industry. So my pharmacy company and my consulting company were both existing industries. There were markets in place. You were just looking really for uh, market share and a point of difference. Whereas the inventive side of entrepreneurship is we are actually coming up with an idea from scratch and then trying to convince people to trust you and to trust the service or product to use it in their environment, which is all the more complicated in the health system, which by definition is very conservative because you're dealing with a very precious cargo, which is the the health and well-being of the patients that they look after. And how's that gone? Well. <laughs> what kind of impact is it having? Uh, it varies. So <clears throat> um, there's, a, there's a range of factors which determine success for us, but I guess if I was to summarise, since we started, I think we've got more than 23,000 people have used the system in the last couple of years. Uh, to uh, these are people who have essentially presented to an emergency department where we're, op where we're operational, um, encountered our software, and then in conjunction with the triage team working at the front of house, um, have chosen, so the patient chooses, uh, to leave the ED to begin their journey in primary care. Uh, so it's been, yeah, it's been huge. And, um, you know, for the hospitals that are working with us, that, that can amount to, you know, 100, 200 people a week, depending on what's going on. Uh, for example, during the winter period when the flu season's on, the numbers will be a lot higher. Uh, similarly, when um, our GP community is on leave at Christmas time, the numbers in the hospitals uh, are a lot higher. So you know, we've been really, really pleased with the impact. And how does it actually work? So someone walks into the emergency department, maybe they've got uh, an earache, and um, they see a what, poster on the wall, or the triage nurse says, have a look at this, there might be another option. And then they jump on the app, and they're actually able to see that a GP-type situation, maybe a PHO um, hub down the road, has space, will only take an hour, and they should go there. Yeah, it's a pretty good description. I mean, just to colour in a bit of the detail, so you'll walk into that ED as a patient. Uh, we haven't invested a huge amount of marketing at this stage, so typically you won't have heard of emergency queue. Uh, you'll see a, a large screen on the wall, which is one of our portals. And so we're constantly feeding a, a stream of data to that portal basically welcoming patients to the hospital, but also explaining the kinds of conditions which are suited to the hospital versus those that are suited to primary care. We also display the current weight plus treatment journey of that non-acute group of patients in that particular ED at that time. So it might say five hours or seven hours or whatever that is. We update that regularly. Then we'll have next to that the opportunity for you to go into primary care and what the current weight for the clinic down the road is. So it might be a Manise Care or White Cross or something along those lines. You'll see what their current wait time is. It might be an hour and a half or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, patients then um, will either choose to download and leave um, at that point or they will talk to the nurse. And the nurse can um, help them with any questions that they've got. And obviously if they've got a more acute condition, they'll stay put. 
Otherwise, uh, we're seeing large numbers choosing to leave and start their journey down the road. That must create heaps of efficiency in the system with all of this infrastructure and not all of it at the same kind of um, usage. And you've got it in, in how many DHPs at the moment? Uh, we've got three running at the moment. So we're at North Shore Hospital, <coughs> excuse me, we're at North Shore Hospital, Middlemore Hospital and Waikato. Uh, we're about to launch at Hawke's Bay, and uh, we're in discussions with a number of other DHBs around the country, so it's a pretty exciting time. We're really pleased to be able to take the benefits of this and give patients back you know, a significant part of their lives that they could uh, use that time to do other things with. Yeah, and remove that, oh God, how long is this going to be, that you know, is constant uh, in, in those situations. And, and quite stressful if you're if you're a parent or you're you know looking after someone. Yeah, and that stress can um, find itself being mirrored onto or reflected directed at the staff mm-hmm. at the front of house. So what we're noticing, for example, is we're getting some really interesting feedback from nurses, where they're saying the aggression levels have um, uh, have dropped uh, from in terms of patients who are frustrated, because what's happening is when the nurse is providing that patient with an alternative right at the outset. And when the nurse is able to direct that patient to the, to the TV screens or to their mobile app, and they can actually see, look, if you stay here, that's fine. You're welcome to stay here. But you can see that for your particular issue, you're going to be here till 2 in the morning. Mm. Whereas you could be home by 6 o'clock tonight if you went down the road to the local alternative. Yeah, and they're not the bearer of bad news. It's the, it's it's the opposite. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. And, and that must have is, – is there stuff like this happening overseas? Like international application? Well, when I first came up with the idea back in 2015, I just assumed there must be. Um, <clears throat> however, whilst I could find little pieces of what I had in mind, so there's loads and loads of um, healthcare applications which will tell you, you know, what your local hospital's wait time is. Finding something that gave you the counterfactual and then also had the other elements of the system that I had in mind, which was a portal-based approach. So we have a range of portals that we run. If it was just the mobile app, this wouldn't have much effect at all. But when you take a systematic approach to this, so we've got a a portal, which I've described for the waiting room, we've got portals designed specifically for triage nurses and hospitals, and then we've got portals designed specifically for primary care. And when those are all designed with the view and needs of that patient in mind, that's when the magic happens. That's why we're seeing up to 14% reductions in ED volumes. And are you going to take it overseas? Is that the next step? Uh, absolutely. So our, our focus right now is very much on doing a fantastic job for our New Zealand doctors, nurses, ward clerks and our patient communities. Um, but the, the problem that we have here is not unique. And um, yeah, we're in early stage discussions with a, uh, several other markets offshore. Mm. So four years since like uh, coming up with the idea? Yeah, pretty much. Which is like quite a short time frame in terms of making... Medical things happen. <laughs> that's, 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 that's crazy. But when you just you know, told people that you were stepping out of, um, you know, working at the top table and then going to be someone knocking on the door uh, with an idea, did people tell you you were bananas to be trying it? Or you know, did, did, has, have there been times when it looked like it wouldn't be working? Mm, absolutely. And, and this is one of the things you need to have as an entrepreneur. I think you need to be able to handle the word no. Because in the early days, you'll hear 99 of those for every yes that comes your way. So again, it's that ability to dust yourself off and carry on, but also to learn from when people tell you no, <clears throat> and you know why might they have said no, and what's what's in their thinking. Put yourself in their shoes essentially, and then um, take that learning on board for the next time. But yeah, look, it's it's a, um, I think it's a real privilege. Yeah. So look, no is normal um, when you're an entrepreneur, especially when you're coming up with a new idea. Um, 
And particularly when you're trying to um, get that new idea to take hold in a, a very um, conservative environment, which is the public health sector. Now, it's, it's rightly designed that way. It's designed to change very slowly um, because it's effectively, you know, looking after the lives of yourselves and your family, you know, our community, our family. So, um, but, you know, you just need to maintain uh, a real clarity of what it is you're trying to achieve. So the unambiguous view of what the vision is and then uh, to have some very clear stepping stones towards achieving that and uh, to listen to the feedback that you're receiving, to really listen. And when you do that, when you take that approach, um, you find that gradually the no's start to become less and you start to get more yeses. And that positivity, if you like, creates a, an internal momentum within your business, uh, which is good not only for you, yourself and your team, but also for the people that you're out there trying to deliver a service to. And it's interesting also that, you know, uh, coming into software development, uh, you know, after having another career, um, not being technical and the like, you know, like, how does that match up with people's um, preconceptions about what a software founder is? Because the actual facts are that, you know, most successful software companies are founded by people in their late 30s who've already had a couple of um, other, think, you know, goes at the rodeo. Yeah, it's surprisingly common. Um, I think, you know, to run a, a successful business, you clearly need to have um, the passion and the drive and the dedication and all those sorts of things. Um, but, for example, uh, one of the most dangerous things is to pretend that you're an expert in something that you're not. So I don't for one minute claim to be technical or to have the expertise in that area. So I very much leave that area over to people in my team who are outstanding in that space. Um, where people like myself come in is essentially by blending, if you like, the experience and the history that we have and the skill sets that we have, which are about essentially translating an idea into an outcome and having all the structures and processes in place to be able to deliver on that dream. And having um, made some contributions at some pretty high levels over a number of things, like what's success for you? What's your, as a last thought, what's your definition of success? Oh, you'll be surprised. I've had this question asked of me occasionally, and usually in job interviews earlier in my career. Um, and for me, um, for the last 16 years, success is basically um, being a good father. That's fundamental to me, being a good husband and a good father. My family is, is um, my major driver in life. Um, and so from, from the business perspective, um, success to me is taking a, a problem, understanding that problem, and then building a solution to that problem which you are then able to put into, into real life, into the wild, and see actually manifest itself in a change in the way people live. So I, I really get a huge kick out of the idea that um, from the time I went to bed to the time I woke up, dozens of people around the country used our software and saved themselves about four hours in time, um, which is time that they could use to go back to bed or, yeah. or, or do whatever they wanted to do with their lives. It's... Uh, it's really hard to describe or put a, a value on that. So for me, success is about, is about helping people um, uh, in whatever way you can through what it is that you do. Oh, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing the story of Emergency Q. Can't, see, can't wait to see uh, where it goes next. Thank you so much, Morris Dieter, CEO and founder. Uh, welcome. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. If you do have any suggestions for people that you'd like to hear from on Business is Boring, hit me up on Twitter at Simon underscore Cheers.
You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.